Well, good morning, church. And good morning to you who are online as well. Uh, we were praying for you. We know that many of you who are online today are recovering, maybe from a surgery, or you're taking care of someone who needs help. And our prayer for you in this moment, we know that it's not the same not being in the room with us, but we do pray that you would be experiencing the love and presence of Jesus and that you are here with us in our hearts as we worship this morning. Uh, if I have not met you yet, my name is Jeff. And I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited that I get to preach this morning. I'm excited that we've been able to worship with our hearts united in love for Jesus. We're going to continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. This is the longest sustained teaching that we have of Jesus in our scriptures. These teachings were revolutionary. They changed the world in an unparalleled way. And our prayer for each one of us, us who are preaching included, is that God would speak to our hearts through his word, through Jesus' sermon, and bring change and bring transformation to each one of us. I want to pray and ask that God would do that this morning. Would you join me in praying? Father, I do pray that, that you would illumine our hearts. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to hear your Son's voice through your word this morning. Lord, he preached this sermon so long ago. We know that you will use it. It's alive right now to change us. I pray that you would do that. Would you speak very clearly to each one? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open them with me to Matthew chapter five. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the corners of the back room and up here. We'd love it if you have one with you. If you don't have a readable Bible at home, please take one with you. That's an important thing that we would love for you to just have in your possession throughout the week. So before we read from Matthew 5, I want to quickly remind us and, and share how does this Sermon on the Mount that we're going to be studying this uh, spring, how does it fit into this book of Matthew, in the, into this ancient biography of Jesus' life? What is going on in Jesus' life? ministry up until this point in Matthew. Um, up until now, he had been doing two things throughout Galilee, so not a very wide area yet. He had been doing two things. He was announcing and enacting the kingdom of God. He announced the kingdom saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he enacted the kingdom of God by bringing heaven's resources to bear upon human illness and affliction. He brought healing as he went around proclaiming the kingdom in that way. I want to read from Matthew chapter 4, the very end of Matthew 4, because it's a good summary of what Jesus had been doing. Matthew 4, verse 23 to 25. It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So as he was announcing and enacting this kingdom, Many were being attracted to his ministry and seeking to hear what was he saying? What was this all about? 
His call to repent when he proclaimed the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, his call to repent wasn't just a turning from sin, like sometimes we think of. It wasn't just that, but it was a call to rethink life, to rethink life in light of the reality that we now get to live with him in the kingdom of God right now. It was a call to rethink life in light of the present availability of heaven's resources in our everyday life. And as they heard him proclaim that gospel, that good news of the availability of the kingdom, and then they saw him enact it through healing and dealing with human affliction, it only makes sense that they would start to think life could be really different. This really changes what today needs to look like if what this man is saying and doing is real and true, I really do need to rethink my life. It's that sense in which he was calling people to repentance. It wasn't, sure, I'll repent if I have to in order to get into heaven. It wasn't that at all. It was a new way of life and existence is possible because of this man he has made available entrance into the kingdom of God and all of heaven's resources are now available for our ordinary human lives. And we get to rethink life now in light of that. That's what I believe was happening. It was a very natural and they, they were compelled to repent and to rethink everything in light of that. Because Jesus made available a whole new life, a life of continual joyous companionship with the triune God a life where God was near and experienced and enjoyed as they went about their normal lives. This was very good news, very good news. And the amazing thing is, is it's available to anyone who will rely on Jesus for it. To anyone who will come to him for it, it's available. It's not just for later after we die, it's for right now. We get to live and experience him and his kingdom now. And as we walk through this Sermon on the Mount, his teachings will make it clear and bring out in more detail exactly how we experience and live in that kingdom now in this world and what kind of questions he's going to answer. Questions like, what's now important in my life? What needs to be my priorities because I get to be part of this kingdom that you reign over Jesus? What does true beauty and goodness look like? in light of your kingdom? And perhaps most importantly, the question of who are we? Who are we now that we have been immersed in heaven's resources and power in the world? It's that question, who are we now that we are in this kingdom that Jesus is going to answer today in this sermon? Who are we? And what does that mean for us and for the world around us? because we are in his kingdom. Let's read Matthew 5. We're going to read verses 13 to 16 in Jesus' sermon. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a real amazing few sentences, what he says here. We're going to walk through each verse together to get as much from what he said as we are able to. But first, I want to just give a high-level view of what I think Jesus is saying here. In, in this teaching, Jesus, who's the master teacher, right? He is the one that all teachers need to learn from how to teach. In this teaching, he takes two of life's basic necessities, salt and light, things that all of the people who heard him would have had experience with and understood, and all of us in this room know what salt is and know what light is. We're, we have experience with it. He takes those two things and communicates profound realities about who we are now that we are kingdom people and then what that means for the world. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Both salt and light change the environment or the thing to which they are added. They alter it. They are meant to influence the world for good. And that is what our calling is as kingdom people. A different translation of the Bible than what I just read starts this section with Jesus saying, let me tell you why you are here. Let me tell you why you are here. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are called to be, to be the people of God everywhere we go. We are salt in, in the decay and we are light in the darkness. So I'm going to get a little nerdy here on the English language, okay? So you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. The verb there is are in those sentences. Are, A-R-E. It's a state of being verb. We are called not to appear as salt or light, appear a certain way or simply to do the things that salt and light do externally, we are called to be. At the very core of who we are in our beings, people of God whose very relationship with Jesus and the universe around them has changed dramatically. It's one that's based on self-giving love and grace that's flipped upside down from the hierarchies of power and self-interest that we so often find ourselves immersed in. This call for God's people to influence the world for good goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. Even before any human being had ever rebelled against God, this was his call on their lives. And I just want to read a couple passages from the Old Testament that will frame what Jesus is teaching here. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 will be up on the screen Listen to how God gave them this same call at the very beginning. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Having dominion in this passage meant sharing in God's work to care for and cultivate the earth. That's what Adam and Eve were called to do. They were called to be God's image bearers, people who would reflect 
God's mediating love and care for the world. It was through them, God's image-bearing priestly kings, that God intended to take care of creation through human beings. What a unique privilege and a massive responsibility we were given at the very beginning of creation. But things didn't go according to plan, right? They didn't. The choice to sin, the choice to rebel, means that human beings were unable to enjoy and express that care over creation the way God intended in all its fullness and beauty. When human beings decided to take the crown off of God and put it on their own head and say, this is my authority and my power, I will usurp your authority and I will run things the way I want to, that original call for human beings did not go according to plan and it has not gone well on earth ever since. But then what about after this? What about after God's first human beings rebelled against him? Well, that design didn't go away. God's intention for human life did not change. It's just that the call that he gave to Adam and Eve was narrowed and it was given to his unique people. His people were then called to carry out that same thing that Adam and Eve were called to, to be his mediators on earth of his love and his power. Listen to what it sounds like in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. This is how it sounded given to Abraham. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth will be blessed. Abraham was to become and be a great nation that was blessed by God in order that all the families of the earth would also be blessed. Now listen to this promise again that's repeated through Moses to the whole nation of Israel. This is Exodus 19, 5 and 6. It says, Now therefore, if you, Israel, will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Israel, too, was called to be God's unique people in holiness, separate, distinct from what was around them. And did you catch that it said they were to be a kingdom of priests? That's that, again, mediating role where God's goodness and love and power was meant to go through them and be a blessing to the world around them. But they weren't able to carry it out. Even the most faithful among the people of God have not been able to fulfill this because of our brokenness, because of the disease of sin that is within us. And that inability to live out God's original intention for human beings seemed like it was going to be an inevitability for all time. And then the man, Jesus, came to earth. When Jesus came, a human being came to earth who was actually able to do this the way that human beings had always been designed to do. He fulfilled all righteousness and he perfectly mediated God's love and care for all around him, all the time, even giving himself up 
for those around him on a cross. He did it. He did the thing that God made human beings to do on behalf of all of us. He did it. And now, the amazing thing that Jesus is doing here in this sermon is saying, yes, I did it. I fulfilled it. You get to be part of this kingdom in me and through me. And now you too get to be part of this ancient call that God originally gave all the way back in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. You are going to be part of this call to be a blessing to the world, to season it and to enlighten it with my presence in you. That is what is going on here, and that's what the context is for what people would have been hearing and waiting for and hoping for at the time of Jesus. Now, back in Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. What is he getting at with this metaphor? You are the salt of the earth. I don't think we need to overcomplicate it. Salt flavors. It permeates. It alters flavor, and it brings out flavor with, with whatever it is mixed in. But in addition, addition to flavoring, it also preserves. Salt preserves and it prevents rot. It's used as both a seasoning and a preservative. If you enjoy cured meats, it also, think uh, summer sausage, salami, if you enjoy that, you are benefiting from salt functioning in both ways, as a preservative to keep the meat from spoiling and rotting and making it very tasty to your tongue. It keeps the meat from spoiling. To be, again, to be, not merely to appear, as the salt of the earth means that we who are in Jesus both season the earth, we bring out good flavors, lively flavors, the, the way that the world is meant to be of the earth, and we preserve it. We counteract rot and decay that is going on around us. Here's the thing about salt, though, the way we normally use it. Salt is usually mixed in whatever batch of thing we make. It is usually not just put in high concentrations on one part of a recipe. So imagine like a very, very salty bit of salted caramel or making popcorn and all the salt goes on like four kernels in your bowl or maybe meat that only is partially salted, only on like half of it. That would not be good, right? It would taste horrible and the meat would not rot because the salt has not been mixed in and worked through the whole batch. And I think there's something in that for us to consider as we think about how are we salt? How does Jesus intend for us to be salt? This morning when we are in this room worshiping together, we are a big block of salt. We're a big block of salt all in one place. And that's very, very good that we're all here together. But if we remained here, if we stayed in this place together all the time, we'd function much more like a salt lick than salt out of a salt shaker. And I'm assuming that many of you know what a salt lick is, right? It's like a block of salt and minerals that animals or deer might come to to get nutrients from, to lick, to maybe be hunted, right? That's what a, that's what a salt lick is. God does not intend for us to function like a salt lick. He intends for us to be like salt out of a salt shaker that is spread out 
in all the corners of the places that we live and work, that we might flavor all of those places and preserve and protect all of those places from the rot and the decay that can so easily spring up in our own hearts too. That's what I believe part of what he's saying here. But he doesn't just say, you are the salt of the earth, does he, and leave it at that. He goes on to say, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? So that makes, we should wonder, how could salt lose its taste? And I checked this, what I'm about to say, with a chemical engineer um, at our church to make sure I was saying this accurately. Salt cannot lose its taste, okay? Technically, salt, N-A-C-L, back to your chemistry classes, sodium chloride, the kind that we use, it cannot lose its taste. If it's sodium chloride, it will taste like salt. But here's the thing. In Jesus' day, that mineral, that compound, would have been mixed in with other minerals, so that there be more or less salt in with whatever batch it is. So you imagine a bunch of stuff and 50% of it is actually salt. The more that compound got diluted, the less salty it would be, which is different than when we take a salt shaker because it's like all salt coming out of it today. But that's what he would have been getting at. Don't let your salt get diluted. Don't let it become not salty at all where it can't accomplish the thing that it was made for. Because the more that mixture gets diluted, the less salty it will be. Jesus is alerting us. He's warning us that to be effective, to carry out the thing that he made us for and who we are in our call to flavor and preserve, we need to continue to be salty and not salty in a rude way. We need to taste like salt. We need to preserve and we need to flavor the things that are all around us. If we lose the potency of our saltiness through mixing in and adopting with the ways of the world around us, we will not do and we will not be what we were called to be in Jesus. For us to be salt in this world, we need to be Christ-like in our hearts and in our lives. Just like what we read in that call to Israel early on, We are called to be holy. We are called to be set apart and different around, different than those around us due to our allegiance to Jesus, the King. And this is not merely a call to act different. It's a bigger call and a more radical call than that. It's a call to be like Christ in our innermost being. And as our innermost being is like Christ, then what comes out in our actions and in our words, will be like Christ. And a really important part of this is that we are going to fail to live this out. We just are. We, as we seek to follow Jesus this way and be salt in all the places that he has put us, we are not going to do it perfectly. But even when we do that, even when we miss the mark, our own desires we aren't able to fulfill often, even when we do that, there's a way that as we are unfaithful to Jesus that we can be faithful to him by pointing to him as the source of forgiveness in that situation, that he is the one that can reconcile us to God when things don't go how we would want them to go. He's the one that can reconcile us to each other when we let each other down. 
when we don't do what we really want to do, even in, even in our missing the mark on that, I believe we can still be salt. It's really important that when we are out as salt in the world, that people know we do not think we have it all together. We do not. We don't have it all together. We are not perfect people. We are people in desperate need of a Savior, and His work in us is not done yet. There has been significant work, yes, but it is not done yet. And I'm convinced that part of the way that we are salty is that we let people in on that reality. We just don't have it all together. I'll give you an example from my life. I remember a conversation on the campus of UW-Eau Claire when I was serving there with the Navigators. We were doing walk-up evangelism, meaning you walk up to a person you don't know and you share Jesus with them. It's not something that we do around here very often, but we were doing it there in a campus environment. I approached a young student and after asking her permission to share the main message of the Bible with her in two minutes, she said, yeah, go ahead. I shared it with her. And then I said, could I have your feedback on what I just said? Like, what was confusing? What was offensive? How did it sound to you? She said, it all sounded fine. I've never heard that before. She had not heard like a summary of the gospel in that way. But then I could tell that there was something on her mind that she really wanted to ask me. I said, well, do you have any questions for me? She looked at me and in the sincerest tone that I can imagine said, do you think that you're perfect? And she didn't mean it like, do you think you're perfect? She meant it like sincerely, like certainly if you're out doing this somewhat odd thing, you must think you are better than me to do that with me. And in that moment, I was able to share with her actually because I am not perfect, because I'm imperfect, and because every day I am desperately in need of this Savior and His grace and mercy, that's why I want you to know about Him. It's just the opposite. And her response to that was one of surprise, and it led to a very fruitful conversation, again, with this student who I had just met. For me, it was a moment of clarity where I went from people need to just see all the time that I have it together to I need to be the real me all the time. And that means I don't always have it together. And I believe that that's a very important part of our seasoning in the world. Jesus concludes this warning by saying, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we have to assume that he didn't have in mind the way that we use salt in the winter on our roads. He wasn't saying it's no longer good for anything except to melt snow and ice. He was saying it's no longer good for what salt is meant to do, flavor and preserve. Salt on the ground being walked all over is not permeating or altering the environment it is in at all. In that case of being on the ground that way, it's not doing anything. It's not fulfilling the purpose at all. It's as useless as dust on the ground a far cry from what Jesus intends for his people to be in the world. So there's the salt metaphor. Now on to the light one. Jesus continues, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Light shines, right? It pierces through the darkness. It illumines It enables us to live in the world. 
Without light, we'd be tripling, tripping and stumbling around in the darkness as we tried to do our lives in the world. Imagine being in a dark room or a dimly lit room permanently and trying to do life and work and play in that space. How many more hazards you would encounter because you can't see the room for what is really there and how much you'd miss out on because you can't see the true colors that you're meant to be seeing in that space that you are in. That is what light does. It enables us to live in the world as it is. It enables us to see the path that we are walking and interact with it. It enables the true colors and life of the world to come through. As Jesus' people, we are light in that way, meant to shine and illuminate all the dark places. Not merely showing what is wrong with the places, like shining a light on it and saying that's wrong, but shining a light that would change the environment that we are in and that would allow people to leave the darkness and enter the light of Christ. To be and to emanate what is really and truly good and right. An important disclaimer about this light that we are now is that the light does not come from us, does it? It comes from Christ. Listen to John 8, 12, how Jesus talked about this. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Like Jesus is the light of the world, we are the light of the world through and because of him. Our light is derived light. We reflect it through his Holy Spirit who he put inside of us. Jesus makes it really clear that the light that radiates from us is our good works. When he says that they may see your good works, that they would give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And our good works must, of course, include our actions, but also, very importantly, our words that we speak to the world. They alert people to our identity as people of light. Remember, our, our identity is that we are people of light, and as that light radiates, people can see that's who you are. You're a person of light. I can tell by the way that you live and act in this environment and by the words that you share. And he, Jesus says that it gives glory to God when we do that. And giving glory to God, I think, can be a phrase, a religious phrase that can lose its meaning if we're not careful with it. I think it, giving glory to God means that we reveal God for who he truly is in all of his radiance and his goodness and his love and power. And then when God is seen for who he really is, God is worshiped and loved and obeyed because we can't help but worship him when we see him for who he really is. So throughout this Sermon on the Mount, as we continue it in the next few weeks here, Jesus is going to elaborate more and more what does it mean to have your light shine in the world? What does that look like in particular now that you are part of the kingdom of God? But we now have the benefit of not only Jesus' sermon, but also teachings from some of these people who would have very heard Jesus' teaching in, in this setting for the very first time. We have the benefit of the apostles' writings, and we can see how did they hear what Jesus said, and then how did they teach others the same thing. Here's an example from 1 Peter 2. This is how Peter heard this call. He says, But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory to, your, to God on the day of visitation. You see all the parallels that Peter brings out here, and I believe that he got these from G- listening to Jesus teach. There's echoes of what we already read also in Genesis and Exodus in what Peter said here. A royal priesthood, light and darkness, a chosen people, who don't take on the ways of those around them, but instead live a life that is salt and light, that all people would see those deeds in those people and give glory to God, to God. And all of that, again, flows out of who they are. They are redeemed people. Peter said once they had not received mercy and now they have received mercy. That's what it's like for us, church. All of our actions that we want to be salt and to be light, flow out of what God has done in us. So of course there is this outward movement, right? Light is shining and salt is spread out onto things. But a large part, I think, of what Jesus has in mind here too is what we do with what comes to us. What do we do as his kingdom people when we experience evil towards us in the world? How do we overcome evil with good when it comes to us rather than doing more evil in response to it and amplifying it and creating a bigger mess in response than we had to begin with? For example, as we live lives of faithful allegiance to Jesus, we will be misunderstood. We'll make choices that not everyone's going to understand. I think that's part of what Peter was getting at here when people speak evil against you falsely. When that happens, when we're misunderstood, how do we respond to that? With defensiveness and some sort of desire to get even? Or do we respond with trust? And trusting our reputations to God and responding with a firm resolve that we will do towards that other person what is really, truly good, even though the situation of being misunderstood is not fair. It's not easy to do what I just described. It's, I think, impossible apart from God's miraculous work inside of us. This week alone, I've had multiple conversations with people in our church who are currently going through something like this, where they are being misunderstood, and it's affecting their life and their relationships. That is not easy. They are walking a very hard path right now. It's painful to be misunderstood as you follow Jesus. But I've been so deeply encouraged to hear from them as they do this questions like, what does it look like for me to love this person right now? What does it look like to love people who aren't being very lovable? It's amazing to see how God is working that out in our midst right now. 
A big part of what we do in response to evil in our lives is that we absorb it. That's often what ends up happening. We absorb it, we don't repay it. We don't amplify it. But in more extreme cases, like cases of abuse, for example, overcoming evil with good will include alerting the proper authorities so that the thing can be dealt with as it needs to be. Just like Jesus did with his salt metaphor where he gave a warning, he gives a warning with this light metaphor as well. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. He's saying here, be careful. Be careful that the light in you is not obscured and dimmed so that it can't shine in the world as it is meant to. Hiding a lamp under a basket so that it can't give light to the house would be like going on a hike at night or maybe fishing on a boat at night and putting a headlamp on and then immediately putting a hat over the top of it. As soon as you put the hat over the headlamp, you can't see the treble hooks or the northern teeth and you get hurt. The light is meant to illumine the environment so that you can live in it and enjoy it. When Jesus says, let your light shine and don't put it under a basket, I believe that's what he's saying. Don't let that light that is in you become obscured. Don't let it not shine in the world as it is meant to. We need to take off the hat and let the headlamp really shine in our environment because he has worked something amazing in our hearts. He has given us mercy and transformed us into new people. I think one of the ways that we will obscure that light, as I thought about my own life, how do I do that? How do I obscure light like a hat would over a headlamp? Well, it's obvious that it's disobedience in some way whenever I'm disobedient to Jesus. But I also think it might be when I'm distracted, when I'm just not in tune with what God's doing around me when I go through my day on autopilot and I just don't even realize I'm in his kingdom right now. He's doing something. I can be aware of it. So it could be distraction or it could be just a day of disinterest. Maybe we have a day in our life where we just have all kinds of things happening and life feels really heavy and we're just disinterested. We all have moments like that. Well, when we head down that path, we're obscuring the light. We're putting the light that is in us under a basket or a hat over a headlamp. And we also just miss out on the joy and the power of getting to live with him in his kingdom that day in close friendship with him. And then the world, of course, misses out on who we were meant to be in the world. Instead, God's intention, as Jesus is making so clear here, is that light would shine through us into the world as we are the people of God and the world has changed around us in all the places that we find ourselves, bringing out all the colors and all the beauty that God intends for this earth. Part of the communication part that goes with our salt and light, at least part of it, is being able to share with other people the good news of the availability of Jesus' kingdom that they can enter. That's part of it. Being able to do that winsomely, sharing the gospel with people in ways they can understand And of course, when we share the gospel winsomely and our life is accompanying it with salt and light, actions that demonstrate the kingdom's power the way that Jesus did when he enacted it, 
It gives validity to that message that we share and it gives validity to us as a messenger as we follow him in faithfulness. This is not about just doing and saying the right things. So Jay and I are going to get more practical about how this would play out in specific scenarios on the podcast this week, so you'll want to make sure that you listen to that. But I want to at least begin to think, just for a couple minutes here, practically, what does this look like for our lives? I know that so many in this room are doing that, and we have heard so many stories of the way you are being salt and light right now. But here's just a couple things that came to my mind as I was preparing this. First, I, w- I think it's really important that we start living this out with those who are closest to us, and then we move outwards with it. I say that because sometimes in our desire to serve Christ in this way out there, we miss out on loving and caring for those who are closest to us, like in our own homes or in our own neighborhoods or like across the street. In our desire to do something out there, we miss the people that God has put around us already. So that's one thing I think that's worth thinking about. How do we do this with those that God has put right next to us very intentionally? And the other thing that I've been thinking about is what does this look like to be salt and light in the ordinary life circumstances that I find myself in? Like for me, how can I be salt and light at a youth sporting event? If you've been to a youth sporting event, you know that there needs to be salt and light there. So how can I do that? I'm thinking about that. Or maybe with an angry coworker, or with a sick kid and you're not able to sleep. How do you do that? I know that my prayer for me and for you this week is going to be that God would show us in our ordinary lives, in those ordinary circumstances that we experience each day, how can we do this? How can we bring flavoring and preservation to those things. We have been given the gift of living in his kingdom right now. And sometimes when we hear this call to be salt and to be light, it might seem to mean we need to go start some new big thing, some new big activity. It might. It might. But for most of us, I think the bulk of what this means is continuing to do the things that God already has us doing, but in the power and life of the kingdom. By his means, in true beauty and goodness and love and grace. And then when God does lead us to do something new, something that's outside those things that we're already engaged in, we move forward in that same power and life that we already are experiencing with those closest to us. As we continue to go through this sermon next week, we're going to continue to hear the ways that Jesus has designed us as his people to carry out his mission that he gave all the way back in Genesis to Adam and Eve. It's beautiful, the picture that he's painting, and it's impossible apart from his good work in us and through us. Will you pray with me that this could happen in our hearts more and more this week? Father, we are only okay as people to the extent to which we cling to Jesus. He is what makes us okay. He is what makes us content. He is who brought us mercy and life. Our desire, God, is so much to be salt, to be light, and that out of us being salt and light, 
the world around us would be impacted and changed for your glory, that you would be revealed, that all the good flavors that you intend and all the beautiful colors would come out in the world that you made. God, would you show each one of us in our ordinary circumstances this week what this might look like in a new, fresh way? Would you encourage us, God, where we are doing this really well? And would you, in your gentleness, lead us to new ways that we need to continue to grow as being salt and light in our world? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.